Mindfulness Mode 415. So we understand why there are certain behaviors and we understand why we're getting certain results. And now that we know it, we can do something different. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. So good to be here again. And by the way, I've recently recorded a new free meditation to help you get more focused. It's just for you, Mindful Tribe. With more focus, you know, you can get more of the things done in life that truly matter to you. On the meditation, I talk about waves and how the waves can bring you calm and become more relaxed, peaceful and content to calm your mind and relax your body. Just go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash waves of content. Today's interviewee is just absolutely brilliant. And she uses the word brilliant in her book. And I enjoyed her book thoroughly as well. So much value in today's interview. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's interview with Claudette Rowley. Mindful Tribe, I'm here with a wonderful author today, and she's just written a brilliant book. And I mean brilliant. We'll talk about that in a minute. The book is called Cultural Brilliance. But I'm here with Claudette Rowley. Claudette, are you in mindfulness mode today? I I am. Prepped and ready in mindfulness mode. That's great. Claudette Riley is the CEO of Cultural Brilliance, a cultural design and change management consultancy. And as I said, she's also the author of Cultural Brilliance, the DNA of Organizational Excellence. Over the past 20 years, Claudette Riley has consulted at Fortune 1000 companies, small businesses, academic institutions, and startups, helping them create proactive and innovative workplace cultures that deliver outstanding results. So I love when it's about results. Claudette is passionate about helping organizations resolve complex problems in ways that honor the intelligence of their cultural system and the brilliance of their people. She also has a fantastic show called Cultural Brilliance Radio, and she lives in Boston. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book, Cultural Brilliance. I'll just hold it right up here. Cultural Brilliance, the DNA of Organizational Excellence. So, Claudette, what does mindfulness mean to you? Well, and thanks for so much for having me on the show, Bruce. My pleasure. Yeah, yeah. So when I think of mindfulness, and I'm, you know, I'm not a mindfulness expert, but I recognize and value how important it is, uh, yes. just individually as people, and certainly in organizations. And I think it's really about um, being a. I think of it as presence. You know, really being aware of where we are in any moment, and and really under. I think another as- key aspect of mindfulness, especially I'm thinking through the organizational lens, uh, since that's where I spend most of my time. Of course, is for folks to really be aware of their impact, um, to be aware of, you know, are they making up a story about something that may not be true? Have they assigned meaning to something because someone made a comment to them in a meeting? And really be having that mindfulness to check out their own, the stories they make up in their heads or the emotional reactions they're having and step back and say, you know what, let me really get more information. Let me take a deep breath, right? And, And look at this a bit more objectively. And I think in organizations, that's definitely a part of mindfulness. Well, I love that truth 
is one of the first things you talk about in your book, and it reminds me of the Four Agreements, you know, by Don Miguel Ruiz. That's one of the Four Agreements in that yeah. book, you know, and and I think it I think it's true that 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 is very very important. Why did you choose to make that one of the pillars of your book, Cultural Brilliance? Yeah, I I, I chose that because I think without the truth, we can't make change, right? And I think, you know, everyone has their own version of the truth, right? Because part of it's perception, but I, all voices need to be heard. There's not, my truth is not better than your truth and vice versa, right? So I think if we can't tell the truth about what we're experiencing, we really can't make change and culture or, or effective change, change that's going to last. And culture, I, culture is so truthful. You know, culture yeah. is, culture just evolves the way that it evolves and there's no judgment in it. So it's, it's truthful. And if you understand how it operates, then you can really decide more intentionally what's going to work for your company. Well, I think for our listeners, we should start by defining cultural brilliance. Can you define that for us? Sure. There are a couple of different ways to think about it. Um, one is that it's, I, I think of cultural brilliance is as really bringing forth the potential in the organization. So I see a lot of companies and organizations in general leave untapped potential on the table, right? In, in the form of their culture. And so, and that can be in the form of individual people's contribution, how the whole organization operates. Uh, you know, it's both. It's really looking at all of the people together and individuals. So, and when I think of brilliance, what I notice in organizations is there's a different uh, level of engagement. There's a different level of contribution. So you're bringing out the best in people. And like, it's almost in, in an odd way, they get smarter. <laughs> you know, they're already mm -hmm. really smart. And now you've allowed them to show their true selves. Um, and so they're even, they even do more in terms of innovation, creativity, problem solving, you know, bringing up important data, whatever the case may be. From a systemic perspective, I define brilliant cultures as organizational systems uh, that proactively adapt to change in ways that decrease stress, inspire learning and promote organizational health and success. And the reason I gave that definition is, or created that definition is I wanted organizations to recognize the possibility that you can adapt to change in ways that act, aren't stressful or as stressful. They could actually increase more learning in your organization and it could be the cause of your success. Um, I think change is often viewed as a, you know, a drain, right? A negative, and it doesn't need to be. I love how you started off your book on page four with, what a business should look like. Imagine a brilliant culture that looks and sounds and feels like this. And then you list 10, no, 11. You list 11 points. It's just fantastic. The first one is respect, trust, truth, and psychological safety are the norm. Mm -hmm. And it just feels so good to read through this list because, yes, if, if a, an organization had everything like that going for it, wouldn't it be fantastic? It Can was. you tell us a story about an organization where you went in and things didn't look like that and you were able to transition them into an organization that did look like that? Absolutely. Um, there's a company, and I'm actually still doing some work with them uh, in because they're doing so well, right? Not because they're not yes. well, we've kind of gone into phase two. Um, and they're a company, yeah, in which people would trust each other to, you know, help each other out, right? Or, you know, if someone was in a, personally, you know, they were moving and needed a bunch of people to come over on a Saturday afternoon and help them move, they would, they trusted each other like that. But they didn't trust, they didn't have that psychological safety, right? To take the risk to have important conversations. 
and I, I should define psychological safety because not everybody's heard of it, yes. but it, it's really just this, this idea that an organization is safe for interpersonal risk-taking, which means that I can bring up an idea. I can bring up, I can voice an unpopular opinion. I can share that I made a mistake and I'm not concerned about any retribution. Nothing negative will happen to me in the organization because of it. doesn't mean I won't get constructive feedback, right? But I won't lose my job or be passed over or gossiped about or whatever. So it, there's nothing bad that will happen to me. But I, that organization didn't really have psychological safety. Um, and so we've done done a lot of work on, on that. And what's happened over time is that they you now have people sharing ideas. You now have people solving problems. And not just the leaders, because you know that's something I talk about in the book, is you need to have participation from everybody, right? Right. Levels. So you have people from all levels in this organization solving problems, sharing ideas, um, really. So there's this vibrancy that's reemerged in, in the company that had, I'm sure was there at the beginning, but had long, had long gone. Um, and so that, you know, when you see that kind of vibrancy and energy come back and people are solving problems differently and their operations improve, their productivity improved, their ability to handle um, you know, increased sales volume and all of that improved because of this what you first mentioned, the psychological safety, trust, and truth-telling. Claudette, you did something in this book that I've never seen before. At least I never remember seeing it before. And I think that's that's really interesting. You begin your book with a glossary. You don't tuck it at the back at the end. It's right there at the beginning. There's a glossary. Do you find that mnemonics sometimes get in the way of cultural brilliance, that people just are not on the same page with the meaning of some of these words? Yeah, absolutely. Because I, you know, I made some of them operate or combine things in different yeah. ways. And that actually came that glossary and the step-by-step process at the beginning came from um, a great freelance editor I worked with on the book. So I'd write rough draft and I'd send it to him and he'd, you know, edit it and give me feedback, which was really helpful. And he said, he's like, you have got to put something in the beginning because he understood my work because he'd been in it, you know, but right. that I just think people are going to get lost trying to figure it out. And if you have something like a graph and, or a chart they can just go to, it's going to really help. So it was his giving credit where credit was due, <laughs> his idea at the beginning, yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's a great idea. You explain in the book how you use cultural, the, the cultural assessment process. Can you share with our audience about that? Sure, yeah. That takes different forms in different companies, of course. But generally speaking, we're you know, I like to do a lot of observing and be a cultural detective, so to speak. Um, and I mentioned that term because I think people in organizations can do that too, which is where you really step outside of the culture as best you can. Try to be very detective light and objective and observe what's happening, observe behaviors. Um, you can also, I also do a lot of interviewing usually because I am, I am a total outsider, right? So I can, I can glean a lot from interviews. Um, I do a couple, I, it, there are a lot of different assessments we can use. Uh, one, of, one of the ones I featured in the book is one called the Culture Talk Survey, which I really love, which yes. looks at culture as a set of archetypes. Uh, culturetalk.com is the website. If anybody's interested, they're a great group of people. Um, and I'm certified in their assessment. And then I also facilitate um, a, a group self-assessment process uh, that's actually from one of Edgar Schein's books. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, Edgar Schein is one of the forefathers of organizational culture. He taught at MIT for 50 years. Uh, so his one of his books, Organizational Change and Leadership, I think, has this facilitated process where you can help companies, organizations, groups actually understand their deep-seated cultural beliefs. 
And I find once companies start to understand those beliefs or assumptions about their culture, again, these are beliefs nobody knows about really, you know, but they're driving behavior. That's why they're important. Um, then you really, you, you've hit some real pay dirt where you can say, oh, that makes a lot of sense, right? Now we can understand, we understand why there are certain behaviors and we understand why we're getting certain results. And now that we know it, we can do something different. So when you start working for a company, how long does this assessment process take? Yeah, it, it varies a bit, but I would say, it, and it's usually incumbent upon how quickly the company wants to move, right? Because we have some engagements that involve participation from lots of different people, but we could get it done in, you know, in six to eight weeks. If we're moving at a fairly, you know, fast clip, it might take three months, just depending. Yeah. And how many of you go in and do that? Just yourself? Um, it can, well, so if it's a larger company, I, I would take a couple of um, colleagues or consultants with me on it. Uh, if it's a smaller company, I can, you know, pretty much go in and do it myself. Um, right. Yeah, you can get a, you know, if it's, if it's a smaller company, I probably will probably interact with everybody, which is great. Um, but if it's a larger company, we'll, we'll be pulling, um, pulling together a group of folks that represent every department team and level in the company. So you have full representation. Right. I see. Yeah. Chapter nine in the book is called Become a Culture Whisperer. Oh, yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And, and that that the last two chapters of the book um, are focused on leadership, but I think they apply to anybody in an organization, really. Right. Yes. I'll be leaders. So culture whisperer is someone who just like a dog whisperer or horse whisperer really starts to tune into the culture in a way where they understand its nuances. Right. Uh, through listening, through understanding the emotional energy in the culture. And because they tune in and observe and notice so much, they understand more about what by what I call what might be emerging in the culture. Right. What are the things something's always emerging in any system, but we're not always tuned into it. We're not always aware of it. One of the things you mentioned in the book is about open spaces and a lot of organizations feel, you know, we've got this big open space and this is just the best thing going. Mm -hmm. Tell us why open spaces are not always the best thing going. Yeah, it's that's an interesting, interesting piece. Sometimes I get feedback. Why do you think that's a, a warning sign that you might have an issue in your culture? Right. Right. And it's because it, it open space can be wonderful. It depends. But I've gone into open spaces in you know companies I've consulted in where you could hear, they said, oh, we want to do this to be more collaborative. And you could hear a pin drop. Wow. So no one's talking. And then if you watch people, they're either whispering yes. or they have headphones on or earbuds in because they either don't want to be disturbed or they don't want to disturb other people. And they'll have, you know, the usual setup, right, as we, most of us know, is the conference rooms on the sides. You can go reserve yes. a conference room, small conference room for a discussion. Um, but to me, that defeats the purpose of collaboration. If I still have to arrange a conversation with you, isn't, you know, it, and the other aspect of it, I think is important to note is it, work styles differ so much. So for there's some people for whom open space is a nightmare because they can't focus. So I think yeah. you take into account, what are people's work styles? What kind of work do we need to get done? What's our industry? And you actually designed a space that met a couple, two or three different types of work styles. You'd be much better off. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah, because some of us do thrive with that feeling of, you know, sp walls around us or yeah. something around us. Some of us just don't feel safe when when we're in this big open space. I know one of the things you talked about is, you know, an organization that tolerates bullying behavior. Yeah. That's a real problem. Let's talk about that. Yeah, that is key. And uh, unfortunately, I think most of us, if we've worked in organizations that for any length of time, have probably at least observed a bully, right? We have. Hopefully not yeah, experienced it, but sure. at least seen it. 
And so, and I, I like to define, uh, make a caveat around bullying. I'm not talking about, um, because there's a sensitivity around it now, you know, I'm not talking about someone who's had one or two bad days and said some things they shouldn't have said, right? Doesn't that, not that that's acceptable or doesn't need to be handled. We're talking about someone who engages in a behavior that's, it's repetitive and recurring and it's, you know, humiliates other people, makes them feel threatened or uncomfortable, puts them down, distracts them from doing their work, things like that. Um, and that is definitely, if you tolerate bullies, you have a cultural issue. Like I'll say that hands down um, because it means you're, you don't have psychological safety. You're not, you're not prioritizing people being treated with respect and dignity. And, you know, we know bullies are usually kept because they're indispensable. They're rainmakers. They have the biggest account. Customers love them. Um, they've made a lot of money for the company. And yet what, there's a great website um, called the Workplace Bullying Institute. And mm -hmm. they actually, the people that do that work and re the researchers and psychologists, they actually outlined how much it costs an organization to tolerate bullies in dollars and cents. They go through a full formula and it's pretty astounding how much it costs organizations. So that bully is never worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. No, never worth it. I'm sure. Uh, there are cultures that actually cause people to want to leave. Mm -hmm. Ta let's talk about that. Why does that happen and how does it get changed? Yeah, cultures that make people want to leave. You know, and I think it's certainly if there are bullies, right? Um, people want to leave also if, if they don't feel valued or supported or appreciated, if they feel overworked, if they maybe they've really been committed to the company and the culture and they've tried to make changes and they can't get anywhere. It falls on deaf ears. No one's listening to them. So I think those are some of the reasons people will leave, right? We know people leave cultures. They leave companies where values are out of alignment. They don't. Research shows people may leave because they want a higher salary, but that's not usually the number one reason. You know, if people like their work a lot and they feel valued, they'll usually stay, uh, stay in companies. So, um, but if you see a revolving door of people leaving your organization, it's really time to look at your culture. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it is. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk to you about meditation. Okay. Are there any forms of meditation that you encourage to help people relieve themselves from stress and anxiety? Yeah, I, I personally don't don't meditate much. I have to admit, just full disclosure. Sure, um, sure. But I did, you know, I thought about it. And I, you know, one of the things that I do that I find really probably meditative is is a regular exercise. And that has to do with that I'm a high energy person. So it's really helpful for me from a stress perspective. Um, and I find when I'm exercising that I, I, you know, my mind gets very focused on what I need to do. So it's hard to think about anything else. Yeah. And that is, is meditative. You know, it's, it's really, the mind is not focused on the past or the future and, you know, bouncing around worrying about things. Um, so that works really well for me. Uh, definitely. The other thing too, and this is, I know a common one is being in nature, you know, and just getting really focused on that experience of beauty. So do you encourage organizations to add an exercise component, whether it be a gym or whether they encourage their employees to go to a gym? Do you talk about that with them? I, I, I talk about it more in the sense of the stress level in the organization, right? So, you know, do, yeah, do people have enough time to go take care of themselves, which could be going to the gym, right? Or whatever you want to do, go for a walk. And then really um, looking at the level of stress, of course, there's some there's stress in all organizations. And I think some stress can be good in the sense that it keeps us on our toes. Um, or we're just rising to a particular occasion, but then the stress dies off again. But when there's a chronic level of high stress, I do talk to organizations about that and how that's not healthy. And it's also 
it's just not it's not allowing people to to be at their best and it's really not allowing the organization to if we look at it really logically to function well one of the things you talk about is it's a real problem when leaders ask for more and more and more data Mm -hmm. but then they do nothing about it does this happen a lot in some companies it does and it's not always i find it's not always um a negatively intentioned act sometimes leaders are not aware of the impact they don't really think about it so uh, yes is it true there are leaders in some companies that ask for data and purposely intend to do nothing with it yeah that's true but some leaders i've, I've seen they they ask for data and information and they don't realize how frustrating it is for people to give to collect all this data whatever it is give it to them and then hear absolutely nothing back or or to feel or 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 just to for them, a leadership team to keep saying, oh, yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. And they just never get to it, you know, after three or four months. So it's a way to disengage people. I love how well laid out your book is. It's I mean, I'm not surprised that it is, but I mean, as I read it, it just seems to flow and it's easy to follow. Did it take a lot of thought and a lot of planning to make that happen? Or did it just naturally happen for you? Is that a, is that part of your mindfulness? Yeah, thank you. That's an interesting question. I think it is part of my mindfulness, and I can't take credit for it. I was just born like that, you know. So um, <laughs> that I just I that I look at I look at ways to communicate things. I mean, even before this book, you know, as my work, yeah. part of my work, I look at ways to communicate things um, that are logical for folks, you know, so they can follow a pattern or they can follow a process. So something that might be like culture, culture is logical and we understand how it works, but until we get to that point, it sometimes can seem illogical, right? So I wanted to come up with a system that people could follow that wouldn't, I mean, I there, yes, we have the glossary and the steps, but once they understood that, that they'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense that we go to this next step. Yes, it makes sense we go to that step after that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's obvious that you know, you've put a lot of thought into it and it's, and it's a system that really makes perfect sense. As a child, were you like this as well? Were you very methodical and organized and that kind of thing? Tell us about a day when you were seven years old and what it was, what Claudette was like as a little girl. I think, um, I grew up in a very planful, organized environment. So that was certainly pretty natural, you know, that we'd kind of be scheduled and organized and not like to the level of you know, military precision, I don't mean that, but just generally speaking, things had a flow. Um, sure. But but I, I've always been really creative um, in in my thinking about things. So, you know, the precursor to what whatever seems organized on the page is, or my work, you know, first it's it's a big, it's not, it's, it's, it comes out of a creative process that I have, right? Which isn't particularly sequential in any way. So it's an, it's an output of that. But yeah, as a seven-year-old, I was drawing, I was coloring, I was playing, you know, with dolls and Barbies and dress up and all this stuff. So there was a lot of very creative, we played outside, of course, a lot of creativity in the downtime, you know, outside of school, definitely. Yeah. In the section where you're talking about leaders, you say, shine the light on your blind spots. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's not always easy to do, but let's talk about that. Yeah, it's so important. All leaders, all people have blind spots and there's no judgment in it. Um, but leaders, as we know, leaders, what leaders do and say is really magnified. So their blind spots are in a bigger deal in that way in terms of impact. So um, when a leader is aware, becomes aware of their blind spots, it's really helpful to the organizational culture because there's usually a way in which they've held held up part of the culture of the company through a blind spot. Uh, 
one of the best ways to do this is I have an exercise in the book called the Cultural 360. And it's really essentially about getting feedback from folks in the organization about um, about the culture. Like, I think one question I have is something like, what, you know, what should I know about the culture that I'm not aware of, right? Things like that, you know, getting into those kinds of questions and, and having people give feedback so that you as a leader, like, oh, you know, I had no idea, right? That I was holding up the company in this way. Yeah. You uh, talk a lot about listening because listening skills are extremely important for a leader and you have questions for self-reflection. Yeah. Because we always need to self-reflect as a leader. Let's talk about self-reflection. I think it's really key. Um, you know, how how have I, I'm using that word impact again, but really how have I influenced, impacted, made a difference, not made a difference, right? And And really thinking through how... You know, for example, a leader that's coming to mind is someone who um, sometimes would a great, a really great leader in, in many, many ways. And he, though, one of his blind spots was not recognizing that when he would ask people to run things by him, certain things in the company first, he would then take a really long time to get back to them, mm -hmm. email, and you know, even up to a week or two. Um, and not because he was sometimes because he's thinking about it, but sometimes because he just was behind in his email or whatever or forgot about it. And so, like, really, I had to have a, a really frank conversation with him and say, this is the pattern. People are really frustrated. And, and you know, they know and, and, you know, they don't think it's, it's um, you know, malfeasance or anything. No one's thinking that. It's just that they they just need the answer so they can. Mm -hmm. Right. And when they don't get the answer, it's kind of, you know, you see people just sort of sink down into why did I bother? Right. This is so frustrating. Next time I won't bother. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's very important for leaders to manage their own stress and identify yeah. their own stress. Yeah. And uh, what do you suggest for them? Do you suggest anything different for leaders? I, I think it's because leaders have influenced the company and the organization so much, right? Um, as everybody does, but they're more visible. You know, how I think around, especially around communication, right? How do I, if I'm under a leader and I'm under stress, does that change my communication, right? Am I more abrupt? Do I not communicate, right? It, it, how, how does that impact me, you know, in terms of man? So I, if I manage my stress, so I still communicate effectively. If I manage my stress, so how can I manage my stress so, so that I still interact with people effectively? Those are the two places I really see it, you know, communication and interaction. And so for leaders to be aware, you know, we all usually, most of us change our interaction and communication a bit when we're under stress, unless we're aware of it, you know. So that's a big aha often for people. Yeah, I know one of the goals for for leaders is to feel connected to their people and for their people to feel connected to them. Mm -hmm. What are the some of the best ways for that to to happen? Uh, listening for sure, which you you know, we've touched on a bit, but yes. really I have this this uh this phrase in the book about listening to what you hear. Uh, yeah. and that's really a, not so that means listening to what you actually hear versus what you wanted to hear or hope to hear. <laughs> And when you really listen to people in that way, even if you so don't like what, what's coming at you, you connect with them. You've given them a voice. I mean, I think that's a big deal. Um, we're all familiar with the, you know, people who lead by walking around, you know, and checking in with folks. That goes a long way, you know, taking people out to lunch periodically. I mean, all of those things that seem kind of small or, or, or mundane in some ways are, are huge forms of connection. You know, it, the big announcement at, a, at an all hands meeting is important, but it's not really a connection point usually, right? 
it, it's more of that day to day. One of the things you suggest is to leave people in a place of learning rather than a place of defensiveness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, is that something that is often missing? It, it is a lot of times. And I, I mentioned the book, but I'll say it here again to give credit where credit's due. That's a phrase from my colleague, Hugh McGill, who's a change management consultant in the Boston area. And uh, I said, Hugh, can I, do you mind if I use that? <laughs> That's so brilliant. Leave people in a place of learning rather than defensiveness. I do. And I, I think sometimes it's a lack. It's a blind spot again. It's a lack of awareness um, that when you, you know, you interrogate people, when you question their judgment, um, things like that, they really are left in a place of defensiveness, uh, which doesn't mean we don't, I always make that distinction, doesn't mean you don't ask people questions about why they did things. It doesn't mean you don't have a challenging feedback conversation. That's not it. But there are ways to do that that leave people in a place of learning. You decided to start the Cultural Brilliance Radio and be host of that. Yeah. Why did you start that and how has that helped what you do? Yeah, I, I, it was an opportunity that came up um, about two and a half years ago uh, and kind of out of the blue, you know, someone introduced me to the head of a transformation talk radio, Dr. Pat Basile, and um, I got really intrigued by it. And one of the things that really helped me to do I mean, it, this is something I'm passionate about. So spreading it over the airwaves, you know, is a way to get the message out, certainly. But I also realized that by having guests on the show and thinking through how the show was going to work, it really helped me move my own content and branding along a lot. So it was kind of, it, it, it was certainly to spread the word and to get ideas out into the world, but also it was a way to help move my work forward. Um, and I'm some, you know, I'm someone who always likes to learn new skills. So learning how to host a show and have that kind of conversation was certainly um, something that was interesting to me. And because I've been a coach for a long time, you know, it can bring in all my, my coaching skills to those interviews. What's your biggest fear in all this? What causes you real fear? What causes me, I think prior to the book launching, I mean, there was a lot of fear around that. The launch won't go well. No one's going to read it. No one will like it. You know, all the things that we have, right. Those yeah. that are not mindful, um, necessarily in the, in the realm of mindfulness, um, that part of the brain, but now that the book's out there, um, I think it's, it's that the, I, you know, that the ideas won't be understood or the book won't get into enough people's hands that they'll, um, that they'll be able to benefit from it. Um, and I think the book has, it has a lot of different ideas. So like, I feel like it has something for everybody in, in companies. So even if you use just one chapter or one idea, I think that's really valuable. You apply it to your team. You know, you don't have to use the whole system. So I, I now that the book's out, I just want to make sure it gets, it, you know, continues to spread so that people at least know about it and can use the ideas. Right. And the yeah. book was just recently published, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. In January. Yep. In January. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you show a Venn diagram on at the top of every chapter at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, cultural brilliance, of course, is in the center. Aware integration is one of the components. And adapted, adaptogen design. Can you tell us about adaptogen design? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So adaptogen design, um, the system operates in three main phases. So authenticity, which is the assessment piece we talked about. How does your culture really operate? And then once we have that information and a company has a sense of the kind of culture they need to really be successful and brilliant and, and meet their objectives, then we move into this design phase, um, which is moving from where we are now, you know, point A to point B. And it's called adaptogen design because um, adaptogens are natural substances like ginseng or maca uh, that when we take them 
help some people's bodies, their systems regulate again. And so I was, I always explain that briefly because I, I had never heard of the word until about a, a couple of years ago myself. Um, and so I applied this idea that I was challenged to apply this idea to culture um, by a mentor of mine. She's like, what if you had adaptogen cultures? Oh, well, that's, that's a very interesting idea, you know? And so adapt, when we design cultures, we design them to be adaptogen in the sense that they can adapt to change, that they can re-regulate. So if the organizational system gets, let's say there's a brand new competitor, right? A disruptive competitor, someone appears on the scene seemingly out of nowhere or something like that happens, the culture can actually take a look at that and and adapt to it and actually use it as an opportunity. So it's designing a culture that can adapt and re-regulate. The subtitle of your book is The DNA of organizational excellence and you define dna which is interesting for those of you those of us who may not really totally understand the the definition i'd like you to share that but why did you choose that as your subtitle this you know this this idea of cult you know yeah dna is is you know is really is our genetic um our genetic material right in cells that replicates over time um and and is is driven by our you know genetic history so it's a very, I'm sure, very non-scientific definition, but that's the general idea. And um, because I think culture really is the DNA of organizations. And we, the good news is we can change, you know, we have more flexibility than we do with our, our, our genetic DNA, but we can actually change the DNA. So you have a historical culture that's driving the current culture, um, which means decisions that were made five years ago impacts what you're doing now. Um, beliefs in the culture impact what you're doing now that you are aware of or not aware of, right? There's a lot. If you look back at a company's history, you can see a lot of what happened before impacts now. So, um, but I think if you really are intentional about your culture, you can create a, some DNA, cultural DNA that drives excellence. And so that's that's one of the reasons that became the subtitle. I think Cultural Brilliance is a wonderful book for anybody in business, whether you're a leader, whether you're a a CEO or whoever you are in business. I think you're going to get a lot out of this book. So, uh, you know, go to culturalbrilliance.com. That's where you can find Claudette. That's where you can find this book. I want to move forward, Claudette, with five quick answer questions. Just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your your life? Um, I'm, an author, I'm just going to go with the first author that comes to mind, Eckhart Tolle, you know, The Power of Now. Um, yes. I read that maybe a decade ago, uh, and that really was had a huge impact on my life. Yeah. And how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Uh, I think the ability to, uh, sep- you know, as a friend of mine says, um, separating facts and feelings, right? Just because we have a feeling and an emotion doesn't mean that it's actually... It's, a, it's valid, but it doesn't mean it's it's based on the facts in the situation. Um, and so I like to, for myself, say, wait a minute, you know, let's look at the feelings and let's look at the facts because they may be different. Sure. Yeah. Having a focus on breathing is a big deal for a lot of people that work in the field of mindfulness. Yeah. How has breathing affected your mindfulness practice or how is it part of your life? I do. Um, yeah, I, you know. I try to breathe deeply uh, and I find that that, you know, I know it re- helps reset my nervous system. I feel calmer, right? So that's something that I'll I'll do. I'll notice, oh, I'm breathing really shallowly because I'm stressed or something just happened that was frustrating or whatever. And so I just really try to breathe very fully. And although it's simple, it makes a big difference for me. Yeah, yeah it sure does for me too, Claudette. Um, yeah, I want to know if you uh, have a book 
of any kind that mm-hmm. sort of relates to mindfulness that you would recommend besides your own? Certainly The Power of Now, as I mentioned, that was sure. an amazing book. Um, another one, I this is one of my all-time favorite books, uh, and I'll mention it. It's it's called Callings, Finding and Following an Authentic Life, and I read it about 15 years ago. It's by Greg Lavoie, and I found okay. it incredibly transformational. So it's not, I know it's not directly about mindfulness, but one of the things that he talks about in the book is the practice of really discerning and following your own calling and you need some mindfulness to listen for that. Um, so I'll, I'll mention that book. Would yeah. you repeat the title of that oh, book sure. again? So it's called, it's called callings is the title and the subtitle is finding and following an authentic life. Excellent. Because I don't think anybody has recommended that book before on the show. That's so good. that's great. And I will put it in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com so you can get all those details. And uh, yeah, do you recommend an app of any description to help people stay on track with mindfulness? Yeah, I, I don't have, I'm just not very apt to focus myself. Sure. So I, yeah, I don't have one. Yeah. Sure. No, no problem. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you about cultural brilliance. It really is an excellent book, and I have enjoyed having the opportunity to read it and enjoyed uh, having the opportunity to talk with you, Claudette. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks so much, Bruce. I really enjoyed our, our conversation. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, the Waves of Content Meditation. It's a guided meditation just for you, Mindful Tribe. It's free and it's very, very helpful to help you relax and get more focused. With more focus, you can get more things done in life that truly matter to you. On this meditation, I talk about waves and how the waves can bring you the more calm and more relaxed life you've been looking for. Download this guided meditation to calm your mind and relax your body. Mindfulnessmode.com slash waves of content. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.